Welcome to Veritas. Um, yeah, married to Andrew. I'm Colleen. Um, it's really fun to be here tonight because we have two little kids at home, James and Charlotte, um, and I mostly stay at home with them. But So when I get to be here on Tuesday nights, it's a lot of fun, um, and it feels like a privilege and a treat. But we are pregnant. We are going to have two boys. We're pregnant with twins. So it's going to be really crazy. We're excited, um, but we're also like, oh, my gosh, what's this year going to be like? Um, so we hopefully will have them sometime in May. So here we go. We're going to call babies. Come on over. Um, <clears throat> yeah, like I said, it's really fun for me to be here with you guys tonight. Um, it really does feel like a treat when I get to come on Tuesday nights. Um, and tonight we are continuing our series called Uncomfortable. Um, we've been looking at a lot of the different ways that the demands of following Jesus are often not comfortable. There are costs. It's costly to follow Jesus. Not because Jesus just wants to make our life hard, but because it's in following him that we experience something that's even greater than comfort. And tonight we're talking about uncomfortable love. Um, a few weeks ago I came across this story that I found really fascinating. Uh, the headline was this, the man who married an anime hologram. And I kind of stopped for a second and I was like, wait, what? I gotta look at that. Um, so here's the story. A school administrator in Japan, uh, his name's Akihiko Kondo, fell for an anime character named Miku about a decade ago when he heard his, this character's music. Um, they call them cyber songstresses online, where they have this like online set of music. Um, but he bought this device called a gatebox, and it kind of looks like a cross between a coffee maker and a mason jar. Is there a picture of there? Yeah. Um, so there he is. <clears throat> and inside of this little box is this flickering, floating hologram. And this name, the name is Miku. I hope I'm saying that right. Um, but a Japanese startup created these things a year or two ago, and it basically allows someone who loves anime to live with their favorite characters. And this hologram is equipped, it reminds me of a lot of like Siri or Alexa, um, but it has this basic artificial intelligence and it can manage simple greetings, um, it can switch lights on and off, um, and since it's a hologram, it has no sense of self and no desires. But despite this, Kono says that he really feels something for her, that he cherishes this new ability to interact with what he calls the object of his affection. So much so that he married her in front of almost 40 people. And there's a picture at their wedding day. Um, and when I read this for the first time, I really, I laughed a lot because I was like, this just seems so weird. Why would someone do this? Um, but the more that I thought about it, the more sad I became for this guy. Because why? Why would someone marry a hologram, right? The story goes on to talk about as someone with anxiety and as someone who struggles with loneliness and confidence, this kind of relationship is actually really healthy for Kondo. It's really therapeutic, it says. And since he's been hurt before in past relationships, he says that this type of marriage allows him, quote, to retreat to where it's safe when he feels hollow, to be where it's safe and predictable. He doesn't have to be vulnerable, right? He doesn't have to put himself out there. Do you see how he's choosing a comfortable love? He gets to call all of the shots. And as bizarre as that sounds, the more that I thought about it, the more I realized I really am no different than him. We are no different. Whether it's a romantic relationship like this, or a friend relationship with your work friends, or your family, all of us tend toward a love that is comfortable for us. Just like Kondo, we all tend toward a love that's all about us, that's all about our feelings and our affections. We want to do just what we want to do, right? And not take into consideration someone else's feelings or needs or desires. We all tend toward a love that allows us to do just what serves us, what doesn't compromise our energy or our time or anxiety. We naturally, just inside of ourselves, want a love that makes us happy, right? Not one that makes us suffer. We want a love that's not risky, that isn't vulnerable, 
that allows us to bail when things are really hard and messy. But that's not the kind of love that Jesus calls his followers to. It's not a stretch to say that throughout the Bible, one of the fundamental themes is love, right? If someone were to ask you, like, hey, what is, what's God like? Or what's the Bible say about what Christians should be like? A lot of people would say, oh, love, right? That's a really common answer. <clears throat> Sorry, my throat. <laughs> um, but in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, 37, Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? And this is how he responds. He says this. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. <coughs> Sorry. It's pretty clear throughout the scriptures that part of our calling as human beings in God's story is to love God and to love others. And I know that some of you guys are thinking, okay, I've heard this before. I know that I should love people. I'm a Christian, right? So love is like just what I should do, right? But I want all of us to try to hear this tonight with new eyes and new ears because this is a reminder that I think all of us really need, myself included, over and over again because we all forget the weight that Jesus puts behind us caring for and loving for one another is really astounding. And I think that we need to just stop for a second and think, is what he's talking about true of me? Is this what I want to want? Is this what I most desire in my life to look like? So if you have your Bible, turn to John 13, 34 to 35. To set up this scene, Jesus is just about to be arrested and crucified. It's that same night. Um, and he's passing on some of his very last instructions to his followers. This is what he says, <clears throat> and we, need to we kind of need to take this as a big deal because he chose this as some of his final words to kind of impart to people who are following him. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Okay, so we see love for one another like three times, right? And I want to camp here because Jesus is kind of cluing us in what, on what he's doing. He is creating a new community, a new humanity of people who are going to be an alternate community from the world around them. They are going to tell a different story, a different story than the one that's already being told in the world. He's basically saying, okay, I'm going to leave you physically, and I'm going to leave you, but you are going to be this alternate society that shows people the way things are going to be when I return. You're going to show people what it will look like when things are made right and when my mission is fulfilled. Francis Schaeffer if you've ever heard of him, he's a bigger name pastor and author. Um, he died a while ago, but he has been really influential in my life over the years, and he wrote this little book called The Mark of a Christian. Um, and it's really, it's like, I don't know, maybe 40 pages, really little. Um, but he says in it that there's this distinguishing mark of those that follow Jesus. Verse 35 says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. So there's something that people from the outside can tangibly see. There's something observable, something visible that labels a Christian and a Christian community at all times and in all places. I became a Christian when I was in high school, and since then, um, there have been countless, like, distinguishing marks of things that people have worn to show that they follow Jesus. Um, some of these have been, um, have you guys remember those WWJD bracelets? What would Jesus do? Three pictures? Yeah. People wore WWJD bracelets, right? Frog bracelets, fully rely on God. Um, people have cross necklaces, right? People have fish stickers on the back of their cars. People have promise rings. People have t-shirts with verses or things that say kind of weird things. Um, Facebook, Jesus wants to be your friend. So people are like wearing these things to show that they follow Jesus. These things are supposed to call out to the world, 
I'm a Christian, and here's how you know. This is what I'm wearing. I'm showing you what I, what I am, right? And these things aren't bad things at all. Um, they're not, but I just don't think they're quite what Jesus is talking about in this passage. Because Jesus is saying that until he returns, love is actually the mark of the Christian. Love is what distinguishes God's people. Not a t-shirt that you're wearing. Not a bracelet that you're wearing. Not something that you put on your car. It's love. That's what you wear as a Christian to show that you follow Jesus. And notice also in this verse, there's a command here with a condition. It says, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So there's an if involved. It's possible to be a Christian and not show this mark, but if we expect those that don't believe to know that we're Christians, that our community follows Jesus, that Veritas follows Jesus, that you follow Jesus, we will show this mark. We will love one another. And he doesn't just leave it at that. He says, you are to love one another, but you are to love one another the way that I have loved you. So we're to love others the way that Jesus has loved us. So how did Jesus love people? Well, we have to look at the cross, right? Through him, we have this ultimate expression of real and true love. He laid down his life for his people. And mind you, not for people who were righteous and who were good, not for people who were his friends or for those who loved him, but it was for those who denied him, for his enemies, for those who hated him. He sacrificed everything for our sake. He endured shame and ridicule and mocking and torture and death in our place so that our sin would be removed and that we would have his righteousness. And that's what was new in what he calls this new commandment. No one had ever loved like Jesus loved. Nothing like that had ever been done in the history of the world. And so this seemingly basic command, right, for us to love one another, it seems so simple. It's not just this general niceness or kindness. It's really deepened by Jesus' own love for us. And it shows us that the central idea of Christian love is sacrificial. It's this surrender of yourself for the sake of someone else. So we're to love one another in our sorority houses, in our fraternity houses, in our dorms, in our families, where we work, in our small groups. All of those places with the same kind of self-sacrificing love that Jesus shows on the cross. 1 John 3.16 says it this way. He says, by this, we know love, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers or sisters. That's the uncomfortable meaning of love. It doesn't just lead to this easier, sexier life, right? It leads to sacrifice, which is actually really hard. Is that how you love others? Do you lay down your life, your desires, for the betterment of someone else? Or like Kondo, is your love about your feelings and your desires what you want? So what kind, of, what kind of love does this look like? What does this look like on the ground? Let's get practical. Um, what does it look like to strive after this kind of uncomfortable love? I was thinking about three kind of main things, um, and there's a lot more we could talk about. But these three things for me are some of the very hardest things, um, and so I wanted to talk about them. But first, uncomfortable love serves others. This kind of love doesn't serve the self, but it serves the other. And I want to say first off, just to caveat this, this doesn't mean that you hate yourself or that you endure some kind of abuse just because you're trying to sacrifice yourself. And it doesn't mean that God calls you to wither away in loneliness and bitterness because you think that you can only serve others. Love should be mutual. And for any kind of relationship, friendship or otherwise, to actually work well, it does require sacrifice on the part of both parties. But this kind of love that seeks to first serve others rather than what's just easiest and best for me is really countercultural. So how do we embody that? Well, I think one way is to be truly present, to be all in when you're around people. 
You've heard that phrase, giving others your undivided attention. So we love without being distracted. Maybe when you're having coffee with someone, you put your phone in your bag, so you're not looking at it all the time. Maybe you try really hard to listen when someone's trying to share with you what's happening in their life, rather than just jumping in every five seconds with something that's about you. It's really hard to listen without interrupting. Maybe it's being inconvenienced for the sake of prioritizing physical presence until you get coffee with someone rather than settling for a text. Or maybe it looks like uncomfortable hospitality, so you invite someone you don't know as well or people that might be really awkward into your apartment or to your party. You include someone else. How might, be God, how might God be calling you to serve people and to be present with people and not be distracted? It's really comfortable to serve yourself, right? To marry a hologram because it doesn't cost you relational energy and you can do whatever you want to do. There's not a risk involved. It's really comfortable to love your friend when they always do their dishes and clean the bathroom. But what about if they don't? It's comfortable to love someone when they're pretty socially with it. But what if they're not? Because it's not comfortable to serve someone when it costs you time and sleep and energy because they might be an interruption in your life and in your self-care goals. It's not comfortable to love the person that has emotional ups and downs all the time, and you don't know where they're going to be at. It's not comfortable to love the person who really needs to talk when, gosh, you're in the middle of your favorite show, or you're writing this paper and it's due soon. I could go on and on, but the reality is that if you're someone who's trying to follow Jesus, you can't do that in the way that he intended if you only love someone when it's easy. You won't have this mark that God calls us to show to the world. You won't compel people to know Christ's love. The second thing that uncomfortable love calls us to, uncomfortable love commits to each other's holiness. Um, let's watch this video real quick. It's just, there's all this pressure, you know? And sometimes it feels like it's right up on me and I can just feel it, like literally feel it in my head and it's relentless. And I don't know if it's gonna stop. I mean, that's the thing that scares me the most is that I don't know if it's ever gonna stop. Yeah. Well, you do have a nail in your head. It is not about the nail. Are you sure? Because, I mean, I'll bet if we got that out of there. Stop trying to fix it. No, I'm not trying to fix it. I'm just pointing out that maybe the nail is causing. You always do this. You always try to fix things when what I really need is for you to just listen. See, I don't think that is what you need. I think what you need is to get the nail See, you're out. not even listening now. Okay, fine, I will listen, fine. It's just, sometimes it's like, there's this achy, I don't know what it is. And I'm not sleeping very well at all. And all my sweaters are snagged. I mean, all of them. That sounds really hard. It is. Thank you. Ow! Oh, come on. Ow. If you would just don't try to see things my way. So what I think is interesting about this video, it was actually made to show that we shouldn't try to fix people or have the answers or tell people what they need. Um, and I think there's a place for that, right? Fixing something shouldn't just be our default response in every situation. Um, we should almost always listen first, right? But committing to each other's holiness is about more than listening. It's binding yourself to another person, committing to them and encouraging them to live the way that God intends for them to live, to be who God wants them to be. Committing to each other's holiness is about sacrifice, the sacrifice of potentially offending someone that you care about. 
But let's talk about the realities of the situation here. So there's this huge, pesky, painful nail, right, protruding out of this woman's brain. And it's affecting her sleep and her daily life and clearly her relationships. So is it actually best for her to just be listened to? Is that what she really needs? If that nail is ignored, and if that man just continues to be a sounding board for her complaints, this woman's life is not going to get easier. What if she starts hemorrhaging? What if she falls and she pushes that nail deeper into her head and it kills her? Or it does lasting damage? Is it actually loving to ignore that nail? Often in our culture, love means accepting people just as they are, not wanting them to change. You know, you do you, right? And this is often how we treat people. We don't want to say the hard thing. Because what if it makes our relationship go south, or they think that we're intolerant? It's really risky. Maybe someone's hurt you, and the easier thing is just to walk away, to just stop being friends and avoid that person. It's too hard. Our culture, our desire for comfort, tells us to cut that difficult person out of your life. If they're not healthy for you, just ghost them. You don't need them. If they're a burden on you, minimize how much time you have to be around them. Just avoid them. But here's my pushback. Christ didn't do that for me. I was the difficult one. I was one that was running from him, and he came to me. And he still loved me. And he called me out of my sin and into a relationship with him. Because he knew that me walking in my sin was not ultimately what he created me for. And it's not where I thrive as a human being. He didn't let me sit in it. And I love the way that James describes this in James 5.19. He says, my brothers or sisters... If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This word, wander, that we see up here, <clears throat> when it's used throughout the New Testament, it means to disbelieve or to wander away. And it's referring to basically any deviation from the truth of faith, away from the holiness that God calls us to, whether that's accidental or intentional, a big deal or a small deal. And this wandering is kind of a giving over to sin in our lives. <clears throat> it's walking in a love of sin over the love of God. Do you love sin or do you love God? The reality of sin is that when we give ourselves over to it, our hearts harden. And as our hearts harden, our reactions and our attitudes and the way that we behave grows increasingly dark. Sin leads to more sin. It just builds. Think about drug addiction, right? Very few people do heroin just out of nowhere. That's not how it works. There are building blocks. No one just stumbles into it. Take a look at the end of this verse. <coughs> Sorry again. Whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. So our wandering, which by the way, all of us do, right? We all wander away from the truth and from what we know is right and good. That wandering leads to death. James isn't talking about a physical death. He's talking about a spiritual death. And what's amazing is that God uses his people to bring them back from wandering, to save them from death. Part of our role in each other's lives is to restore each other, to bring each other back away from the sin that leads to death. Comfortable love avoids the hard conversations. But uncomfortable love wades into the mess. And it calls us to a love that says, oh gosh, I really hate to tell you this. And it's going to be uncomfortable for both of us, but I'm going to do it anyway. I've been sick to my stomach thinking about how I have to do this. Um, but I have to say it because I love you. I've just been seeing that you have a nail stuck in your head or that you've been gossiping a lot lately. Or, gosh, I've noticed that when we go out, you've been flirting with all of these guys. Or I've noticed that 
things seem really competitive between us lately. That's speaking the truth in love. That's waiting it and bringing something to the light. It's always more loving to talk and confront than just to avoid it. So what if you're the one with the nail? Because we've all been that person, right? The person that just wants to sit and sin and kind of complain about how things are going, to not really want to hear something hard or really be offended if someone tries to tell us something. <clears throat> but when I'm actually thinking rightly about what I want for my life, I don't want to gloss over the reality of what's actually going on. I want people in my life who love me enough to tell me that there's a giant nail sticking on my head. I don't want to be blind to my sin. So maybe if someone's trying to talk to you, before you're offended, maybe ask yourself, okay, I don't know if I totally buy this, but maybe there's a little bit of truth that I can take out of this conversation. Because most likely, that person is trying to help you. That person is probably not willing, willingly going to enter into that awkwardness unless they love you enough to think that the risk of telling you might offend you. And maybe that risk is worth it. So how do we do this? How do we speak the truth in love when you see sin creeping in in your friend's life and you feel like, oh gosh, I really need to have a conversation? Um, here's just a couple of really quick practical tips. <clears throat> First, pray. Um, I know, sounds like, oh yeah, of course. <clears throat> but ask God to help you make sure that this is something real that you see in this person's life. Ask God to open this person's eyes, to not be offended or put off when you have this conversation. Ask him to help you love this person and your tone and your attitude. To do it in person, do it in private. Um, in Matthew 18, 15, Jesus kind of gives us this tip. He says, if your brother or sister sins against you, <clears throat> go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens, you have gained your brother. So whether you've been sinned against or you see sin in someone's life, you go to that person, not, not online, not over text, even though that feels like that would be so much easier, but go to that person and do it in private, alone. Don't do it at small group or in front of roommates. Three, assume the best. Um, go into this kind of conversation assuming that this person is probably not being malicious. Say, I want to assume the best about this person. If they've hurt you, don't assume that it was intentional. Maybe they were blind to something and they weren't aware of it. And then four, do it with an attitude of love. <clears throat> not really heavy-handed like Simon Cowell from American Idol, who just kind of lays it all out there really harshly and bluntly. Um, and not with an attitude that says, I'm better than you, I'm holier than you, and so I'm going to tell you this in your life. I have it all figured out. But do it with an attitude of, we're actually all in this together. I care about you and I love you enough to bring up something that I might see in your life that might be destructive. I might be totally wrong, but I've seen this and I'm concerned. What do you think about that? And then notice at the end of Matthew 18, 5, um, it says, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So the end goal in this kind of situation is not to be right and it's not to have power and it's not to one up the other person, but the end goal is to win your brother back. You have gained your brother, it says. So when we wonder, it's the destruction of our own souls. And so we engage with that person because we, we want to win them back. We want to love them as Christ loves them. We want to meet them in their sin and not let them stay there. We want to walk with them in their battles and their struggles, and we want to urge them onward. And then the third characteristic of uncomfortable love <clears throat> is to be the first to say, I'm sorry. And I know this sounds so simple and so easy, um, but it's not if you've ever, ever tried to practice it. <clears throat> The sacrifice here is swallowing our pride enough to go to someone when we have made a mistake, or when we failed to love someone, or when we've sinned against someone, to go to that person and say, gosh, I messed up, I'm really sorry. And I don't know about you, but for me, that is not automatic. 
the very last thing that I want to do when I hurt someone or when I make a mistake is actually to admit that I made a mistake or that I did or said something that was wrong. Um, talk about really uncomfortable. Um, but one of my college roommates, Emily, and I <clears throat> would often get in these little passive-aggressive tips with each other over really stupid things. And I was texting with her this week and asking with her, I was, I was like, which one should I use as an example? Because there's so many things. We were just, it just took us so long to figure out, like, how do we be good friends and roommates? Um, but one thing that <laughs> we were laughing about after the fact, uh, so we were renting this really cute 100-year-old house on West Broadway, and we loved it. We called it Brick House. And we've been talking for a few weeks about what color we should paint the upstairs bathroom. And we shared this bathroom, so we would both always be in there. Um, but there is this natural red brick on one of the walls um, that looked really cool. And so this would be the wall that would be right next to it that we'd paint. And she wanted it to be pink, like this Pepto-Bismol pink color. And I didn't. And I can't remember what color I wanted, but I just remember thinking that pink would look so bad. And she knew I thought that. Uh, but I had gone out of town for something for a few days, and I get home. And I go upstairs to my bedroom, and I look to the right. There's the bathroom, and I kind of like do a double take and realize while I was gone, Emily painted the bathroom pink. And she didn't even talk to me. Like, she didn't tell me. <laughs> and I was so mad, and I don't think I even said anything for like days. Um, I didn't say anything about it. I'm sure I made really passive aggressive comments about it, and I'm sure I talked to other people about it, which I shouldn't have done. Um, so she for sure knew that I was mad. But when we finally talked about it, it had blown up into this r bigger deal than it should have been. And I had been waiting just for her to apologize to me. I felt like she was totally in the wrong. Like, why would you go and do that when you knew I didn't want that and just paint the bathroom pink, right? And she thought that once I saw it, I would actually like it. <laughs> but then she realized I was mad and was just kind of waiting for me to bring it up and apologize for not saying something. Um, and so we were both in the wrong. And we both let this pink bathroom that got painted cause a lot of bitterness in our friendship. <laughs> Thankfully, we can laugh about it now. <clears throat> But what divides and severs friends and groups, and even marriages, is not usually the hurtful actions that have been done to one another. Sometimes it's those, but because those things are always going to be there in any relationship. But what divides and severs people is the scars that last and the bitterness that's produced when hurts go unrecognized and are never apologized for, when things never get talked about. Those hurts stick in the mind like glue. So why is it so hard to apologize? Because I know I'm not the only one that feels like that. Um, but sometimes I think it can feel like the sacrifice of it is just too great. We have to admit that we're not all we're cracked up to be, right? We don't have it all together. We want to grab hold of our significance and just not let it go. Because that would mean that we're needy. But we are needy. We're people who don't have it all together. And we need Jesus to be at work in our lives. And it's okay to admit that. It's okay to say, I'm sorry, I messed up. So is there something that you need to apologize for? Something that you did or said that might have hurt someone? Maybe something that you've just been pushing down and just don't really want to think about. Go to that person and admit it and apologize. Because when we suck it up and apologize, we're making our love seen. We're telling a different story than the one that our culture tells. That we are people who recognize our inadequacies. They're always going to be there. But we're people who are selflessly trying to pursue Christ's glory and not our own. So does your life show a compelling picture of Christ's love to the watching world? Could someone who's outside of the community of Veritas look in and see a people who love each other uncomfortably and sacrificially? Are we people who watch out for each other and love each other enough to say the hard things and assume the best and be quick to apologize? Jesus tells us that if we are, the unbelieving world will get a picture of Christ's love for them. How would that impact Mizzou's campus? It's worth it to be uncomfortable. 
Jesus is full of patience and kindness and forbearance, forgiveness and grace towards us over and over again. And we are all cold-hearted and slow to love him and unwilling to change and slow to obey. And yet he continues to love us. That love never changes. And that's how he calls us to treat our friends and our roommates and our parents and our siblings, our neighbors, people in class with us. Uncomfortable love should mark our lives. And if it doesn't, well, I think that's an opportunity for us just to lean into God's grace and mercy, to ask for the power of the Holy Spirit in our, in our lives, to keep going, right, to keep pressing on through the awkward and hard because God has started to work in us and he will bring it to completion. He's not done with any of us. He's actively at work through all of the discomfort and he meets us in it. So as the music team comes back up, I wanna go back to Jesus' words in John 17. This is later that same night before he was crucified and he added a few more words about the power of love when he was praying for his disciples. And his prayer for them was this. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So God, would you make us a people who would be marked by love? God, give us the strength and boldness to live uncomfortable lives. Not for the sake of just being uncomfortable, but for the sake of your love being known known to the watching world. May we care about more about your glory far more than our own. And will we be marked by your love? Amen.